0: So we are on a journey together into the theme of shalom. It's a biblical theme. In fact, shalom, you probably know, is a Hebrew word. And it's, I think, fair to say, one of the most popular and one of the most meaningful Hebrew words that is still used among those who speak the Hebrew language. But it's a word not just for the Hebrew people. It's a word for you and I. It's a word for us to grab hold of. And it's a concept, a theme for us to press into because really what the word represents is an experience, a lifestyle. It represents the invitation of God for us to um, experience the abundant life that Jesus invited us into. Shalom is the abundant life that Jesus offered to those who follow him. And it begins here and now though it will be perfected, of course, upon his inevitable return. So when you might say that when we go to be with the Lord in heaven in the next life, after this one, we will be experiencing perfect shalom in every way. Shalom is a life of blessing and peace, a life of godly wellness. It's the quality of life and relationships that God wants us to experience. But here's the rub, right? It doesn't come naturally or easily. We have to seek it. We have to go after it. We have to want it, desire it. And we have to routinely look for those things in life that would steal our shalom. So with God's help, we're called to do that. We're called to work at increasing our experience of the shalom that he offers us. And we're called to live as peacemakers. So here's the challenge then that we've been learning about over the last few weeks. We've been talking about internal shalom, peace of mind, if you will. And we've come to recognize already over the last few weeks that there are a couple of significant things that can rob us of our internal sense of peace. One of them is busyness. And so we talked about the need for rest, the need for Sabbath rest, the the biblical principle of taking time to rest in God's presence and not being driven by works or by accomplishment or by our schedules. Last week, we looked at the the concept of anxiety and how anxiety, like busyness, can rob us of shalom. So this week, I want to take you to another uh, anti-shalom experience, another concept, another thought pattern that can effectively rob you of shalom. And it, it comes to our attention through this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and it goes by the name regret. Regret. If anxiety is an unhealthy preoccupation with what might happen in the future, regret can be an unhealthy preoccupation with with what has already happened in the past. So think of them, in a sense, as mirror images of one another. Anxiety is focused toward the future and what might happen. It's a fear of what might happen in the future. Regret, on the other hand, is a, a sorrow, a disappointment, a pain regarding what has already happened in the past. It's a feeling of sadness sorrow or disappointment over something that has taken place in your life, and particularly a mistake, perhaps, that you've made. Most importantly, regret can work in our minds for good and godly purposes, or what I want you to recognize this morning is that it can actually work against us and our experience of shalom. Let me begin with an illustration that I think captures the essence of the problem that regret can lead us into. It's the story of a man named Bob Ebeling. You probably have never heard of him. He's not somebody that I would expect you to know about unless you happened to hear of his story, which was told on NPR a few years ago. In 2016... Uh, there was a commemoration of the 30th anniversary of the Space Shuttle Challenger, the disaster that took place after it was launched. Maybe you remember where you were when that happened. I was a student in college at the time, and I remember the news accounts and watching uh, the television coverage of that disaster. Well, uh, NPR ran a story a few years ago on the 30th anniversary of that disaster about this man named Bob doubling. He, Bob, was a NASA engineer who had tried to warn his higher-ups in management that it was too cold to launch the Challenger that morning and that those rubber gasket O-rings were not going to hold up. True story. He tried to warn them. It wasn't a good idea to launch that day but nobody listened. They were determined to go ahead with the launch. In a devastating display of regret, Ebeling bore the weight of those astronauts' deaths for 30 years. It was his failing, he believed, that he wasn't persuasive enough to get the launch aborted. He said, I think that's one of the mistakes God made, Ebeling said. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. Now, after the story ran on NPR, here's the good news. Here's the the good ending to that story. There was such an incredible outpouring of support for this humble man when his story went public that uh, NPR did a follow-up program And Ebeling was interviewed again uh, later that year, and this time he said he felt actually felt buoyed and less regretful than he had when the original interview uh, had taken place. And the reason for that was that the feedback that he got and the interviews with NASA brass had helped him accept that the tragedy was not entirely his fault. The shuttle was going to fly... And even the world's best trial lawyer could not have changed the minds of the higher-ups who made that decision. So so think about this story with me for a minute. It's a powerful illustration of the principle that we want to focus in on this morning. Bear in mind, this is 30 years after the event. 30 years. This poor man had been living under the weight of regret and sorrow, replaying the scene over and over in his mind and wondering what he could have done differently to save the lives of those astronauts. That, my friends, is a powerful picture of how destructive a mindset of regret can become in our lives. And what finally set him free? Hearing the truth from others. And perhaps a little bit of the grace of God as well. That truth was that nothing could have been said or done that would have changed the minds of his bosses. They admitted as much. They said publicly, we were determined to launch that rocket. So let's start with this. Let me unpack a few things about the nature of this problem, the problem of regret. And let's start by recognizing the harmful or dangerous effect that it can have, the destructive effect that it can have in our lives if we allow it to become habitual. Here's the first insight that I want to put before you that comes to us from Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Like anxiety about the future, regret or worldly sorrow can rob us of the peace of mind that we're meant to enjoy by preoccupying our thoughts with the past. That's how regret works. It preoccupies our minds, our thoughts with what has happened in the past the story of bob ebling is a textbook example of this principle but perhaps some of you have your own story of living under the weight of regret have you ever made a mistake and then found yourself dwelling on it for a long time thereafter perhaps even years Have you ever beat yourself up mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for things that you've done in the past that were foolish? Have you ever felt like sorrow and regret about the past are eating your lunch, to use a figure of speech? I think of another story that comes to mind that illustrates the power of regret years ago. I was having a conversation with a friend uh, in which we were walking along the beach, talking. And at the time, he was pouring out his heart to me about his involvement in a previous church situation. He had been an elder during that period, during a, a really difficult time in the life of that church, and things had not turned out very well. Many people had been hurt by decisions that were made and had ended up leaving the church and eventually, this friend of mine had, had left the church as well, and the whole experience had left him regretful, regretful. It haunted him with a sense of disappointment, making it difficult to envision moving back into any form of church leadership or ministry. His memories of that experience and his feelings about them were eating his lunch, And in that moment, af- after I listened for a while, thanks be to God, I, I just felt a prompting from the, in that moment from the Holy Spirit to just encourage him to write the name of that church in the sand um, there on the beach. And he did, and we stood looking at it for a few moments until a wave came in and washed it away. Washed away what he had just written a moment earlier. And that image was instructive. It illustrated the power of God's grace over that past situation. I prayed for him that what we had just witnessed would represent the Lord's work in his heart and mind. And he's since told the story that what happened in those moments helped to set him free and to leave the past in the past. So, you know, I've mentioned this before, but what comes to mind in this moment is is the way that Paul begins each one of his epistles. And I think it's significant that he begins each one of his letters with this phrase. Do you remember what it is? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he always pairs those two things together, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason is that grace and peace often flow together because our experience of peace, shalom, is linked to how we receive God's grace over our past mistakes and failures. So this connection between grace and peace is especially true when it comes to how we think about the mistakes that we've made in the past. And what I'm talking about here is not just some random psychological notion. This very experience that I'm describing to you is, in fact, the subject of what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It comes into clear focus, in fact, clearest focus in verse 10. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Take a close look at the language that Paul uses here and and notice how it characterizes regret. Regret is not the fruit of godly sorrow. Instead, it's the fruit of worldly sorrow, which brings death. In plain English, what Paul's saying is that there is a worldly way of thinking and feeling about the past mistakes and failures in our lives that leads us into a mindset of regret. And ultimately, it leads us toward death instead of life. The absence of shalom. The aim here is to avoid falling into a cycle of regret and worldly sorrow over the past. So the title of my message today inspired in part part by a TED Talk with a similar title, uh, has to do with the, the, the invitation, right, the challenge of not regretting regret. Regret has a way of becoming cyclical in our lives, and if you allow it to do that in your mind, you will end up regretting your own regret. The word Paul uses here in Greek is a really long word that you'll never remember. But I could tell it to you anyway. Would you like me to? <laughs> I'll see if I can pronounce this right. ah meta ah meta And according to Strong's Concordance, this is probably a more helpful thing to think about and remember. Here's what it means. It means without regret or remorse for an action because it was done with deep conviction. So this is what happens then when godly sorrow leads people to repentance. They are without regret. There's no regret left. When godly sorrow leads you to repentance, you don't have to live with regret. So to have regret or remorse for an action is to be painfully aware that it had negative consequences but without repentance. It's without changing your mind, without changing your thoughts about that experience. It's falling into a cycle of thinking about your past in a way that is actually destructive to you. Regret can become a pattern of bad thoughts and feelings that does not lead to change. There's a colloquial phrase that we use quite commonly in our culture. What Paul calls here in 2 Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow, is what I think most of us would refer to as the despair of feeling sorry for yourself. Feeling sorry for yourself, and considering yourself as a result to be a lousy failure. Anybody ever feel that way? You don't have to raise your hand to admit it, but I know you do, some of you. We all struggle with that reality sometimes. What this way of thinking leads to often is low self-esteem because it it brings to us a high sense of shame, self-pity, and condemnation, and sometimes perhaps even depression. In fact, in the worst cases, this kind of thinking and feeling can lead people to become suicidal. Worldly sorrow that literally leads toward death is the thought or the feeling, I am such a miserable failure and a terrible person that my life is not worth living anymore. And a lot of people believe that. But to even lesser degrees, the point is that worldly sorrow and regret are not life-producing. They are not peace-producing. What Paul's describing here is an ungodly and unhelpful preoccupation with our past mistakes. An unhealthy measure of regret that can actually capture our minds and hold them captive in a destructive way. Now, thankfully, here's the good news, right? He's saying this is not the kind of godly sorrow that the Corinthians had displayed. They escaped the trap. But they could have fallen into it. They could have. They could have fallen into worldly sorrow and regret over what they had allowed to take place in their fellowship. But they didn't. Instead, they allowed their godly sorrow over those mistakes to produce good and godly changes in their thoughts and in their behavior. Now, perhaps you're wondering what all this is about because it could be a little confusing, a little disorienting, trying to understand what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians 7 if you don't know the backstory. Do you know the backstory? Some of you, a few of you know the backstory. 2 Corinthians, of course, is the second letter to the Corinthians, which was written sometime after they had received the first letter to the Corinthians, in which Paul had confronted the church in Corinth about some things happening in their life together as a church that were particularly unhealthy and unhelpful to the body of Christ. So as a point of reference here, let's recall the situation that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians, and is now writing about again in 2 Corinthians. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had firmly rebuked the church in Corinth for allowing sexual immorality in their midst. In particular, without being too graphic about this, one man in the church was known, this is a member of the church, was known to be having sexual relations with his own mother-in-law. And remarkably, no one had confronted him about it. No one had called him out on it and said, Hey, you can't do this. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is not good, not right. You got to stop. You, you need to repent. So Paul wrote to the church to call them out. He wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he said specifically that his intention and desire was to confront the church with the truth of their response to this situation so that they would take the matter more seriously and do something about it. So then, in his second letter to the Corinthians, here in chapter 7, Paul is acknowledging that his first letter had its intended effect. It worked. He's rejoicing. He's celebrating the fact that his first letter caused the church to repent of that situation. He's affirming that the church embraced a godly sorrow without regret, which led them to repentance, a change of mind and a change of behavior regarding that situation. They changed their minds about the situation, and they dealt with it appropriately, showing that they had learned from their previous mistake. Now what's really really interesting to me about all this if you look closely at 1st and 2nd Corinthians is that Paul all the way back in 2nd Corinthians 2 actually writes about the man, the guilty man who had partaken in this kind of behavior. And Paul says specifically in 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 That he wants to be sure that the man, as well as the church, are not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There's the phrase. And I think there's a direct connection between that phrase in 2 Corinthians 2 and the language that Paul uses later in 2 Corinthians 7. He did not want the man or the church to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Paul's heart was not just for the church, but also for the man who had committed this sinful act. Instead of the man being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, Paul wanted him to know that he was forgiven, that he was still loved by the church. In other words, Paul wanted to help restore his personal sense of grace and peace despite what he had done in the past. That's pretty amazing if you stop and think about it. And now listen closely, I, I don't want to diminish in any way the significance of what any of you have done in the past or what I've done in the past, but what I'm hoping here is that by way of comparison, for, for just a moment, you might recognize that, that what this guy was engaged in was perhaps worse than most of what, you know, what we've done. Now perhaps that's not true for everybody, but, but this guy was engaged in some particularly poor behavior really unhealthy and unhelpful, ungodly and unrighteous in every way. And yet Paul says specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he's not so far gone that he's beyond the grace of God. He can be forgiven. And it would not be good for him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow regarding what he did. If that's true for him, It should also be true for all of us, don't you think? So Paul's desire was that he too, along with the church, would not be victimized by unceasing regret and sorrow. Here are the words that Paul uses specifically, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. And remember, the man of whom he's writing and what he'd done which was addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him, Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. You see, Paul understood what was really at stake. He saw the whole situation as an attempt from Satan to outwit the church. Paul's solution, communicate forgiveness and grace so that this individual and the church would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Just as the church had avoided that trap, he wanted the man to avoid it as well. So the point is that regret and worldly sorrow have a destructive power in people's lives that is not from God. They are one of the enemy's schemes with which he aims to outwit us. He is, after all, as Scripture portrays, the accuser of the brethren. And he loves to heap worldly sorrow And shame upon anyone who won't (laughs) resist him. So, regret is a real power to be reckoned with. Here's an interesting and insightful quote from an article on the subject of regret from Psychology Today. This is a thing, right? Regret is a real issue in our society. Many, many people struggle with this, both inside and outside the church. Listen to these words from this article in Psychology Today. Regret is the second most common emotion people mention in daily life, some studies show. And it's the most common negative emotion. We start expressing regrets at around the age of two, as soon as we're able to articulate the concept of If only. And therefore, we're continually rewriting history in our heads instead of playing the cards in our hands. Counterproductive, right? Not always. It isn't actually so bad to catch yourself thinking, I wish things had turned out differently. Everyone does that. The psychologist Amy Somerville noted recently, It's what you think next that really matters. Somerville runs the Regret Lab at the University of Miami in Ohio. By her lights, regret is only toxic when it becomes habitual. That is, when we develop the reflex to chew and chew on an unfortunate turn of events, like a cow on its cud till there's not a lick of nutrition left in it. By contrast, as something to dial up and analyze once, a regrettable experience can be useful and instructive. So there's an insightful analogy for you, right? Regret, when it becomes habitual, is, is like chewing on your past in the way that a cow chews on its cud. Or if you don't like that analogy, don't want to contemplate that too deeply, here's another helpful analogy. Living with a mindset of regret is like driving down the highway while constantly looking in the rearview mirror at what you've left behind. Not only do you not enjoy the scenery as you pass by, it's actually dangerous to drive without looking ahead and being present what's beside to what's beside and in front of you. If you keep driving with your eyes on what you've left behind, you are bound to eventually crash. Take the steps to get your eyes back on the road and see the scenery of today and focus on where you're going instead of where you've been. So in short then, the warning that Paul is giving in 2 Corinthians 7 is that momentary regret can turn into a cycle of regret, a rutted road in our thinking that we find it hard to break out of. Our thoughts, if we allow them to, can actually develop into neurological pathways in our minds so that they become patterned, like the ruts in an old dirt road. In this way, worldly sorrow produces a destructive mental, emotional, and spiritual stronghold in our minds. As Paul saw it, the enemy's scheme is always to use regret and worldly sorrow against us. But if we are aware of that scheme, we can avoid it. We can avoid it. So that brings us then to the flip side of this passage, the the positive side, the The positive outcome that the Corinthians experienced. How do we do that? How do we avoid the stronghold of regret? Finding a home in our thoughts. Well, what Paul talks about is that we have to seek the kind of godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow that produces a change of mind and a new sense of direction. So here's the heart, really, of what Paul's communicating there is a vast and vital difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. These two things are being compared and contrasted with with one another in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow over the past leaves us with no long-term regret because it leads to repentance, which produces life and peace. So, in contrast then to the worldly sorrow and regret that Paul warns of, let's consider the fruit of what he calls godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow does not lead to a mindset of regret. Instead, it leads to repentance, which is literally a changing of your mind Which leads to a changing of your behavior. So instead of allowing your mind to dwell on the failures of your past, godly sorrow effectively changes your mindset. It causes you to receive God's grace for your mistakes and to learn from them so that you won't repeat them continually. It causes you to leave the past in the past instead of allowing it to consistently affect the present and the future. There's an old quote I've heard many times, and I like it quite well, that goes like this. Every time the devil tries to remind you of your past, you just remind him of his future. You see, our past and his future were both dealt with on the cross of Christ Jesus. Listen again to how Paul describes the godly sorrow and repentance that his first letter to the the church in Corinth actually produced. This is 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, my first letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see now that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. You see, what Paul's saying is, it worked! (laughs) That letter I wrote to correct their thinking and their behavior, it worked. It produced in them a godly sorrow so that they changed their thinking and dealt with the situation the way that they should have, and they did not fall into the enemy's trap of becoming regretful and full of worldly sorrow. Listen to the power of these words. The the real thrust of Paul's words here is to encourage and affirm the church for its repentance. Good on you. You did it right. Way to go. As Paul himself at first felt sorry about rebuking them so harshly, he was relieved to find that his rebuke actually worked. And when he saw that his rebuke had had the right effect and led them to godly sorrow and repentance, he was glad about what he'd written. He was relieved. He was thankful. Thankful that what he'd written had not harmed them, but helped them. And I I love the clarity of of the revelation from heaven with which verse 11 speaks to us. I mean, listen to this list of of words that Paul gives and, and hear the passion behind what he's writing. Hear the excitement, the enthusiasm, the gratitude, He's saying godly sorrow produces good fruit. It produces earnestness. It produces eagerness to clear yourself. It produces indignation. I'm not doing that again. I'm not making that mistake. I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to get it right. It produces alarm, longing, concern, and readiness to see justice done. In other words, what he's saying is godly sorrow produces change. Both a change of mind and a change of behavior. It moves us back toward shalom, not further away from it. Now, just to give you a little different perspective on this, I love the way that Eugene Peterson in The Message translates this passage. Because, of course, if you're familiar with The Message, he he uses modern English, and it's not as wooden, a translation. It's more of a, um, ah, how should I say, it's, it's not a wooden translation that's w- like literally word for word. It's more a translation of the concepts, right? Right. Listen to the, the way that Eugene Peterson translates this passage, Second Corinthians 7 verses 8 to 12. And just listen, I, I don't think we have this on the screen, but listen closely. I know I distressed you greatly with my letter. Although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel at all bad now that I see how it turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. Now I'm glad, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain and no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets. And they end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful? all the ways in which that distress has goaded you closer to God. You're more alive. You're more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Paul saw at work in the church church at Corinth. They were were not wallowing in self-pity for having earned an apostolic rebuke. They were determined to make things right and learn from their mistake. They were determined to put it behind them and leave it there. They were more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. That is the fruit of godly sorrow. Not a bad outcome. And the point is, there's an invitation here for us, right? The same can be true for us and how our past impacts our present and future. When momentary regret serves a good and godly purpose, it leads to greater shalom. God uses it to help us literally change our thinking so that we are no longer subject to, to accusation, condemnation, or shame. So all of this, my friends, is another example of what it means to be steadfast in your mind, in your thinking, by trusting in God. We've looked at this passage from Isaiah 26.3 a few times now, over the last several weeks. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. How we deal with regret is one application of that truth from Isaiah 26, 3. Another verse that we've looked at and referenced a few times now uh, over the last six weeks is in Romans 8, verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. How you choose to deal with regret is an application of that principle. And then last Sunday, I looked with you briefly at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What's Paul talking about? One aspect of what he's talking about is how we deal with the way that we think about the past. So what are we to do? Let me wrap this up and get really practical with you here and then we're going to move to some ministry time. Let's get really practical about this. If you were to take those three scripture references that I just gave and kind of mash them together with 2 Corinthians chapter 7, our text for this morning. What, what does it bring us to? Let me put before you a, a basic summary or conclusion of what we've been talking about this morning. Go ahead and put that up on the screen for me. To keep our mind steadfast on trusting God and allow it to be governed by the Holy Spirit We have to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ instead of allowing our thoughts to take us captive. You see, there are two outcomes. Thankfully, the church in Corinth had the better of the two. Two outcomes. Either you take your thoughts captive in obedience to Christ, or your thoughts will take you captive. Which is it going to be? Either we take our thoughts captive, or our thoughts will take us captive. Falling into the cycle of regretting your regret is allowing your thoughts to hold you captive. In other words, we have to recognize the moment that regret appears on the landscape of our mind. And then in that moment, by the grace of God, we have to choose not to allow it to become habitual or cyclical. In that moment, when we recognize the thought and the feeling of regret, we have to invite the Holy Spirit to turn it into the kind of godly sorrow that actually changes the way we think. That's what Paul's describing. That's what Paul's inviting us to do, just as the church in Corinth chose to do. So in closing, we're going to transition here to some ministry time this morning. And what I'd like to do is actually invite you to do this with me before the Lord. I want you to pinpoint right now, one experience from your past that seems to consistently generate regret in your mind and in your heart. And then I'm going to invite you and lead you in the process of submitting that thought and that experience from your past to God by inviting the Holy Spirit to change your mind about it. Change your thinking about it. What do you say? Can we do that together? Are you game? Come on. Let's do it. Let's pray.